my simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Hey, it's Zuko and Kayla from The Wake Up Call. Enjoy your podcast, but when you're done, don't forget about us. We have a radio show. We try to bring a smile to your face every morning. We also talk to some of the hottest country stars of today, and we like to share some good news with That's What I Like. Because Lord knows that's hard to find. When you're done podcasting your podcast, listen to us at 92.3 WCOL. Set your preset on your radio right now, and don't forget you can listen to us online on the iHeartRadio app. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Support for 100 words or less comes from Talenti. When Talenti makes gelato and sorbetto, they tend to get a little overzealous. Did they need to use so many raspberries in their Roman raspberry sorbetto that the machine broke? Did they need to try 25 different chai teas to find the perfect spice blend for their vanilla chai gelato? Did they have to invent giant mint steepers to make their Mediterranean mint super minty? Does their obsessiveness make Talenti gelato and sorbetto the greatest? Well, you be the judge. But yeah, it does make them the greatest, and they're also the judge. Talenti, the delicious is in the details. I love this stuff, and so should you. All right, now on with the show. What's up, everybody? I'm Ray Harkins, and you are with us today on this beautiful podcast called 100 Words or Less. I try to be like excited coming out of the gate to get you excited to listen to it. And you should be excited because we have an awesome, awesome conversation with a new friend of mine. Nate Ellis, he plays in the band currently, Abel Baker Fox, which is uh, also ex-Small Brown Bike, and they just recently released a record on No Sleep Records that you absolutely need to check out. But he also played in bands like Casket Lottery and Coalesce, and uh, he's he is just a lifer. He's done the damn thing. He's toured, been in really, in my opinion, groundbreaking bands, and uh, I couldn't wait to have him on the show. And an opportunity presented itself, and I hopped at it, and this is what transpired. But let's get some uh, business stuff out of the way up top of this uh, episode in order to make you aware of these cool things that are happening. Uh, for one, let, let me just self-promote here for a moment. So uh, I used to play in a band called Taken. Well, I guess technically still do play in a band called Taken. We just aren't active in regards to the you know touring 300 days out of a year life cycle. But uh, we're going to be releasing a new EP uh, probably sometime in December, and we we're playing some shows in Canada about that or around that. Well, I guess technically it's about the EP. <laughs> That'd be funny. So I am playing shows about this particular EP in support of it. <laughs> I just like that that phrasing. But we're playing uh, some shows in Toronto. We're playing a show in Montreal, and there's a bunch of fun stuff. It's all in December. You can find us on any social media platform, whether that is my own personal Instagram at xpurposex or the Taken Band pages which you can find on facebook or instagram and then you can find ticket links and all that other stuff but yeah if you are in the southern ontario area i would love to hang out with you so please check us out i think it's december 
8th, I want to say, is in Toronto, and then December 10th is in Montreal. It'll be super, super fun. So there we go. There's that. And then also visit noecho.net. Great partners of ours. Love the website. Carlos is doing a great thing over there. Has really in-depth interviews with people involved in punk and hardcore, and then also does some really, really cool stuff. I especially like the record collector spotlight because it really focuses in on the people that, you know, make up this whole thing by buying records and supporting the scene. And uh, yeah, I love that. So visit noecho.net and you'll be able to become educated even further than you are just by listening to this show and probably a few other podcasts about music. But um, yeah, that's that's what I got for you right now. And uh, Nate, like I said, it was a really really fun conversation i there are certain people who i just kind of like circle in orbit and i'm like oh yeah like eventually i'll I'll talk to them and nate was one of those people and i finally was like oh yeah new abel baker fox record let's dive into it so uh yeah it worked out perfectly contacted his publicist and then uh yeah a couple days later we were talking on the phone and uh, this is exactly what happened and um i i loved casket lottery and i loved coalesce so it was cool for me to kind of dig into the uh, technicalities of both of those bands with him because, you know, a lot of that stuff has been published, especially in Coalesce, as far as like a, uh, you know, deconstruction of who they were, their timeline, all that sort of stuff. So I try to take a more big picture view on this sort of stuff. So if you're looking for like the uber specific questions on Coalesce, like you may not get them here, but, you know, you'll get a nice overview of the stuff. So. Anyways, that's that, and um, yeah, here's Nate, and I'll talk to you after the episode is over, in which I will talk about next week's episode. So if you just bail out immediately after the end, don't, <laughs> okay? So uh, yeah, that's what we got. So So, I mean, I'm 36, so, you know, we're same generation, but like I, it seemed like when I, and I'm from Southern California, so it seemed like when I first started to, you know, become aware of, you know, music beyond just the, uh, you know, whatever your standard Victory Records staple of, you know, Earth Crisis, Snapcase and Strife. And once I started to pay attention to beyond that, it, it seemed like the starter kit in the mid nineties was basically like, Oh, you absolutely have to listen to Coalesce and Converge. Like those are, there, there's no way you can get around that. You have to. Like it's you know part of your your indoctrination. Yeah. Like, um, you know, is it? And you know, obviously, you guys did the split seven inch together. Is it one of those things where you know, probably in the moment you didn't have any sort of uh, perspective on the fact that it's like, oh yeah, like a lot of these people, you know, are viewing us as sort of torchbearers in a way. Um, or did it kind of feel like that when you were in the middle of it and just being like, oh, well, you know, I, I guess that we are an entry point for people to start to listen to more, quote unquote, challenging music? You know, I think we were a little disconnected from that, just being in Kansas City, you know. So, um, you know, like 
we were more interested in listening to, I'm talking like coalesce days. Like we were more influenced by all these like Chicago and Kansas city noise bands, like more so than, than hardcore bands or punk bands. So, you know, and like, of course, you know, hardcore and, and punk bands were kind of like our, our background and our, and our, you know, starting point to playing music. But like, we were always influenced by these noise bands. And like, we, when we play with the noise bands, like they didn't give a shit about us, you know? So, right. um, but, you know, I don't know. I mean, I feel like, um, what we were after was, um, a, a completely different, um, thing than where we landed. You know what I mean? So, uh, but to your point, like we knew that like when we went out, um, East, uh, we'd be playing with friends like Converge and, um, you know, like even like today is the day and bands like that. And, um, we had our, we had our scene there. We were definitely, um, you know, we could tell that people were anticipating us being there, which is awesome. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the first time that I saw you guys was, uh, I, I missed some of your Coos Cafe appearances, but I saw you guys with Today's Day at the Showcase Theater in Corona, and that was, um, you know, like you said, it made sense from a sonic perspective that you guys would play together, but, you know, clearly mm-hmm. there's this weird juxtaposition of people who were into, you know, Today is the Day and, you know, quote-unquote extreme metal, and then here's you guys, you know, completely throwing your instruments around and, you know, drooling over each other, and, you know, Jess is going out in the crowd, and people are just like, why is this guy doing this? Um, <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, yeah. when you guys played on those bills, was it very much like that, where it's like, wow, these guys are crazy and they're doing things that we're not used to at a, you know, stereotypical metal show. You know, I don't think, um, like pre, um, two thousands, I don't think anybody, uh, ever really got what the hell we were doing. You know what I mean? Like, and you know, that's not to say like we had some, um, motive behind what we were doing, but like, I, I just, you know, remember just people staring at us like, what the hell is going on here? What is this crap? You know? So, um, it's not like kids were going ape shit or anything, you know, it was just kind of like this spectacle and, um, you know, we were okay with that too. Right. <laughs> you know, it was like, we were just doing what we were doing and, uh, that was okay. And then, you know, in 2002 when Coalesce did that little reunion thing that I wasn't a part of, um, and Jess wasn't a part of that either. Like that's the first time I went to a Coalesce show and like kids were going crazy. It was like, there was like a two year gap. And that was just enough for people to listen to a record long enough to kind of grab onto it, you know? Yeah. um, After that, it was different. Right. Right. No, it's very true. I mean, I I remember when I, first started you know when i got give them rope um and i just didn't i didn't understand it i was like uh like you know i see it it's aggressive but it wasn't until functioning on impatience where i was like oh i got it and then you know by that time i was whatever a year year and a half older so i was you know able to wrap my head around what it was that you guys were doing um but yeah sometimes it does take those you know whatever (laughs) even if it's only a year or two sometimes it takes that long in order for records to seep into people's consciousness Sure. Yeah. And you know, it, it's funny, like before I was even in the band, I, I got the, um, the first seven inch and I probably listened to it, um, a week and a half, two weeks before I even realized I was listening on the wrong speed, you know, right. like that's like how, like it didn't go into my brain at all. I was listening to it on, it was a 45 and I listened to it on 33 and I was like, dude, this is heavy. I don't know what the hell's going on. But, and then when I clicked it up, I was like, it still doesn't make any sense to me. Like, I don't know what the hell's happening here, but, 
uh, I was drawn to it, you know, and uh, I met the dude soon after that. So yeah, no, no, that's really cool. Yeah. I, I I like that experience for you know everybody as they're starting to get into more challenging music. There are times where you know you make these quote unquote mistakes of like you said listening to record at the wrong speed and being like, oh, I don't I don't really understand this, and then you're like, oh. I need to be listening on this. And like, that's what they're trying to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, it still didn't make any sense to me. And just when I caught up with that first seven inch, just when I could wrap my head around it and, and realized what was happening, what the riffs were and like, uh, you know, how it was supposed to feel. Then OO2 came out on uh earache and that was a completely different level of fucking crazy, you know? And I was like, what the hell are you guys doing? You know? And, uh, and then I started going to the shows and watching them and, and just being blown away. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so kind of you know, focusing on you, uh, individually, um, were you born and raised in the Kansas city area or where did you come up? Um, I was actually born in, um, yeah, in, in Lake of the Ozarks. So Osage beach, um, which is right in Lake of the Ozarks, which is like the heart of Missouri. It's like it's a little bit Southern, a little bit central, um, but really like all my formative years were in Kansas city. Yeah. I think I got here in like fifth or sixth grade. So all my, you know, anything that I, um, still remember as my youth, uh, started here in Kansas city. Got it. Yeah. So that, that, and w- yeah. w- what precipitated the move to uh, Kansas city? Uh, so my, my dad, uh, was a Missouri state highway patrolman. So we moved a bit two or three times. Um, but it was always in Missouri, so it was never very far, you know? So, um, yeah, so we moved to Lee summit total suburb of Kansas city. Um, yeah, I, I think it was mid fifth grade when we moved up here. So, um, and you know, it's funny, like I look back at some of the other places I could have grown up and like, you know, try and figure out who I would have become, you know, like they're all very rural Missouri towns, like no punk scene. Like I never would have had access to that coalesce seven inch, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. so who knows, you know, I could be a completely different person had that played out differently, you know? Yeah, absolutely. There's a, uh, you know, that, that cultural isolation, you know, sometimes, you know, in some respects works to people's advantage because, you know, they, you know, start to get into music, you know, when they go to college or something and then they're able to like consume it all, you know, whereas like we were joking about earlier, where it's like, if you listen to, you know, a neurosis record when you're 15 years old and you're like, I don't know what this is, this isn't, I can't, I don't understand this, but yeah, but yeah, it makes total sense that you're like, wow, if I didn't have the access to this, where would I be? Yeah. You know, and just like most kids, I think from, my generation, I got into the music scene from the skateboard scene. So obviously if I'm, you know, out in peculiar Missouri, which is an actual rural town that was a possibility for me to grow up in, I, there, was, there was, you know, gravel roads. I wouldn't have skateboarded. So I, you know, who knows how I would have gotten to the music scene or if I would have, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so where, you know, what was your family structure like, you know, brothers and sisters? And like you mentioned, your father was a highway patrolman. Did your mom work and how did that all play out? Yeah, she, um, she worked, um, my whole childhood in like, um, office building administrative type stuff. Um, uh, and I have one older sister, uh, she's about four years older than me. So she kind of like passed down. Uh, you know, like I, I got into the cure and, and the Smiths through her. So I kind of picked up 
that um, that background, that that music through her. And honestly, those are my favorite bands of all time. You know, like still. So um, yeah, I, I got into you know some pretty heavy, noisy music, but The Cure is still number one for me. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I've been listening to it since I was eight, so it's probably going to be there forever. Yeah, absolutely. Well, especially too when you have that, um, you know, kind of direct access to something from an older sibling where you're like, wow, like that's really cool. And like, you know, they're a few years older than me. So, you know, maybe they've got a better sense of, you know, what's happening in the world. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I always tried to push the envelope a little bit, you know, she'd be into, you know, she's into disintegration and I'm into faith or the top or pornography or like the, the darker weirder records you know just to have my own angle on it but yeah it's you know big sis yeah absolutely um and so the you know as you started to grow up and like you said you know have more of your formative years you know did you uh, did you live in a household that was you know particularly strict or religious or what kind of you know uh, upbringing did you have no you know i i think my parents you know were supportive um the whole the whole time, like even when I started going out at fifteen, going downtown, um, yeah, super supportive. Like always, um, you know, paying for guitar lessons, and and um, they were always just you know pushing me to find what I wanted to do and get after it. You know, I um, yeah, I was just talking to a, an old friend of mine last night about um, the first time I went on the road with coalesce like as a roadie not in the band um i was dropping dan Askew, who's the second nature records guy i was dropping him off at the van um and they were getting ready to hop in and and hit the road and i was 16 i had just gotten my license i was driving him out to the van and like i got there and they were like dude just just come just get in the van and go and i was like all right i'm gonna miss school this week like i just i jumped in the van i went and um, we went to Canada. We we played two shows in Canada, and I think one show in in Minnesota. And mm-hmm. um, like I I called my mom from Canada, and I was like, "Hey, uh, I'm gonna miss school this week. You know, I'm I'm out of town with with the Coalesce guys." And she thought it was like Wichita or Omaha or something like that. And I was like, "No, I'm in Canada." So, um, you know, I didn't even have a coat. It was snowing, and like I just <laughs> like did it. I just went, you know, and. Um, I don't remember, you know, ever getting shit for that, like ever getting in trouble for that. They just kind of knew that I was out figuring out who I was and what I wanted to do. Right. And then, you know, not too long after that, I was, uh, I graduated high school. I was enrolled at community college and like, um, I had already, you know, paid my tuition and, and was getting ready to start that. And, um, Jess asked me, to join the band as a bass player and I'd never played bass in my life. I'd only played guitar. So I got my tuition money back and bought bass equipment. <laughs> I told my parents like, Hey, I'm going to go do this thing for a little bit. And they're like, okay, like go check it out a couple years. If it's not, you know what you want to do, we can, uh, we can, you know, pay for school again. So, but yeah, they, they're always supportive. So. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's incredible. I mean, e- even if parents are supportive, you know, I mean, you can probably speak to this being, you know, a father and and looking, you know, putting yourself in your parents' shoes. Like, you know, if you're you have a daughter, correct? Yeah, I have two daughters. Two yeah, daughters. my oldest is sixteen and my youngest is twelve. Right. So you know, imagine 
your 16 year old daughter being like, yo, I'm going to tour. I'm sure in certain respects you'd be like, well, I did it. So I can't really, you know, be too critical. Right. But at the same time, it's like, I don't know, man, this is terrifying. Totally. Yeah. I mean, you have that, you have all those conflicting feelings around it, but you know, you know, my parents never really voiced any real concerns about it. You know? Yeah. Did of you- course they wanted me to, to like get my shit figured out and, and, um, know what I was going to do. And, uh, I never did. Right. <laughs> so, here I am. Right. Totally. I, I, I mean, did you, uh, you know, I guess kind of toe the line in regards to, you know, like your grades and, you know, you were, you know, relatively well adjusted and responsible. So maybe that kind of gave you more rope to play with. Sure. Um, yeah, you know, but it, it's funny you mentioned that because like that whole last year of high school, I was on the road a lot. Um, and like, I know that I, um, I crossed all the lines for attendance, you know, and I, I actually showed up to my graduation, not knowing if they were going to call my name. Um, I just got the invite and I was like, okay, I better go, I better show up. And they called my name and I crossed and got my diploma. And I was like, man, I slipped through the cracks on that one. Cause I missed a lot of time that senior year. So I don't know. Right. Hopefully they don't listen and retract my diploma now. <laughs> yeah. They're like, you know what? This, <laughs> this kid fell between the cracks. I can't believe you gave him a diploma. Yeah. <laughs> Billy Madison style. I got to go back to high school. <laughs> totally. Get a get a get a hot tutor. You know, do that whole thing. <laughs> yeah, it sounds horrible. Yeah, it does. Um, <laughs> so, like, did you, um, you know, did you have any kind of uh, interests beyond, uh, you know, once music kind of swallowed you up? I, mean, I know that you dabbled with skateboarding as well, but um, you know, was there anything that you were kind of like had an eye to in regards to? Um, you know, I guess doing from a career perspective or like, you know, studies and school and that sort of stuff. No, I never did. And I, you know, like I, you know, um, I kept waiting for some, some moment, something to happen. Um, I think the closest I ever got was like in, uh, you know, working in studios and, and recording and production. And I've, you know, learned enough, um, by being in there to kind of fake my way around that. But, um, but no, I never like found a thing that, that hit me like music did. You know, there's just something about the process. There's something about um, just the creativity and the um, and the connections with the people that you're playing with. I just, you know, that's my thing. Like I can't, I can't find anything to replace that. So no, I, you know, and I fully intended to, you know, I, I thought for sure, you know, like I knew, you know, coalesce wasn't a career. Like, <laughs> come on, man we're smashing guitars and, uh, you know, riding around $350 vans, you know, I, I knew there wasn't a future there. So like I was waiting for that moment or like some idea and it just, um, never, never hit me. Right. No, that may, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, especially too, when you have such a strong pull towards, you know, music and playing in bands and, you know, cause even though, you know, now arguably, like everyone plays in a band at some point. Um, but you know, still it's not that common of experience to, you know, actually get out there and tour. Like that's still a pretty rare thing. So once you experience it and you're like, Oh yeah, I don't want anything else. Yeah, that's true. It's, it's, um, yeah, it's the best, you know, and, um, it's also a total pain in the ass. It sucks, you know, but it's the best, you know, it's, it's all of those things. Um, 
you know, like it's funny, like if you have like some older relatives or, or some people who are disconnected from the scene and they want to talk about it, they want to ask about it. They think it's a completely different experience. You know, they think it's, you know, tour buses and, and, you know, big shows and stages and all that stuff. And it's like, no man, like I've never made any money. I've, I've never stepped foot on a tour bus in my life still. Like I, that's not what this is. You know, this is, um, this is just playing music with friends, right? It's, ba- it's basically, you know? yeah, it's basically glorified, uh, camping, but then you, you get sweaty, right. you get sweaty in a room every night. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not professional at all. Let's just put it that way. Um, and so, I mean, did, did you, b- before joining Coalesce, did you have any, uh, bands that you were, you know, doing kind of independently or were you just jamming in your room? Oh yeah. You know, like high school bands, um, Nothing, no, nothing really to speak of, but you know, just high school bands. Yeah. Did did you play, did you like play shows and everything with those high school bands? Yeah, a a couple of them. Um, one was like more like an old school hardcore band. One was more like, um, you know, like a, like unsane kind of noisy rock band. Um, yeah, you know, really young, um, bands with like, you know, all those bands, it's funny, like, every high school band or younger band I could think of, we always had like that one friend in the band who was like, not, not very good, you know, but like, we didn't want to do anything because he was our friend, you know, it's like, ah, it's okay. You can play bass. You know, <laughs> it's like, totally. <laughs> we just, we just wanted to hang out and make some noise. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, that was, that was it before coalesce. I, I find it interesting too. Cause I, I do, you know, I mean, you've mentioned multiple times in regards to, you know, getting into the noise stuff, you know, am rep and like, you know, you didn't mention that, but you know, mentioning, the 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 noise mm-hmm. stuff that you're getting into i do think it was very reflective over um you know the midwest in general that kind of permeating you know i mean obviously it happened in louisville uh, you know clearly it happened in chicago whereas you know it, in the east coast it happened as well and of course the west coast but it, it just seemed to be more concentrated in the midwest and um i you know i always tried to figure out how that kind of you know happened whether it was just like the proximity of these bands that would you know come and play and you know you weren't so attached to a particular scene, you know, when you first started to get exposed to these bands, but you know, I just always find it interesting. I don't know if you've noticed that as well. Yeah. I mean, I think it was definitely a Midwest thing for sure. In the early nineties, that was, that was kind of our deal, like Chicago noise rock. And then Kansas city had its own like version of it too. Um, the other thing that happened like during that time was like, everybody played with everybody, you know, like coalesce played, dozens and dozens of shows with the get up kids, you know, like that was like the scene. Um, it wasn't just like, you know, the four hardcore bands in town playing, you know, like one venue every night. It was like, um, we had the noise band, we had the get up kids, we had coalesce and then we had boys life, you know, play one show. And it's like, this is awesome. We were all friends and we all stood around and watched everybody. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, that's, yeah, you could definitely put it in the studio together. And I think that, you know, it was so symbolic when, you know, you guys put out the split seven inch with the get up kids and both, in my opinion, did better versions of the songs than each of the respective originals. Like, it's so weird. I like both of those songs, but it's one of those things where it's very rare for a band to like absolutely kill it on a cover and make it their own. Like, it's such a unique experience. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, the, the common link there too was Ed Rose was the producer. Right. Um, 
for for both of those recordings and so like he was having a blast with it too like we got to just kind of flip it all around and uh and uh yeah it was a, it was a good time Right. And especially too, I, I didn't really think of it in the, the terms of, you know, when you, you know, put out the, the, the split 10 inch with a small brown bike and how, you know, I, I mean, many people that bought that recording were, you know, initially were just kind of like, oh, cool split with some friends. Like, you know, this will be good. But then it was like, dude, this is really fucking good. Like, how did this, like, this seems so weird how this happened. And this is like almost superior than some of these bands full lengths that come out you know around that same time it was just such a um yeah unique way for you guys to work that yeah you know i i I, um i connected really quickly with with mike and and ben reed um on those early casket lottery small brown bike tours and um I, i don't know like we just um we put songs together in a really similar way so like when we um when we got together to play it was just it was perfect you know it was just a lot of fun which obviously that's why we started this Abel Baker Fox thing so um yeah that was uh, that was that was a lot of fun and we did a lot of touring together back then too so Small Brown Bike and Casket Lottery played a lot of dates together got really um comfortable with each other and um yeah just um they're the best people. They're like my best friends. So, um, it was easy to get in a room and just hash out some songs really quick. And that's the best part, you know? Yeah. It's just, I mean, I think a lot of bands have that idea and, you know, they try to execute in some capacity, but, um, you know, either it just doesn't come out right and the bands don't want to release it, but it's interesting that that doesn't happen more in independent music, whether it's, you know, yeah, the splits coming out together, you know, that, that sort of, writing process of getting songs, you know, in a relatively quick manner and, and getting it out there and it actually being good, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think there's something too about like the comfort level and the familiarity with like people's styles and, um, and like then the processes around being in a band because every band does it completely different. Everybody's got their own, um, control freak in the band, you know? And like, once you get comfortable enough around uh, your group, you can like actually get to work. But like, if you just hop in a room with somebody, sometimes it can just be really forced and uncomfortable and, um, not fun, you know? So, uh, we didn't have any of that, you know, it was like really easy and a lot of fun. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different things that stress us out, right? Like maybe it's something really, really small, like, man, that parking space, it's always taken. And I wish that I would be able to like get it instead of, you know, this person that maybe, you know, is the most courteous and considerate. I know that's something very random, but it's true. We all experience different things throughout the day that trigger us in so many different ways. And there are many times where I have been like, I wish that I had a a spot or a repository for me to, you know, get this stuff off of my chest. Because if you bottle it up, that is no bueno. And then all of a sudden you explode on a coworker or a friend or a family member being like the parking spot. And people are like, what are you talking about? That is where therapy comes in. And I love working with BetterHelp because I'm a huge advocate for therapy, broadly speaking. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, please give BetterHelp a try. It is so easy because it's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. 
All you do is fill out a brief questionnaire and then you get matched with a licensed therapist. And if you are not vibing with the therapist for any reason, you can switch it out at no additional charge. Get things off of your chest with BetterHelp. So visit betterhelp.com slash Ray today to get 10% off of your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Ray. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. It's the Breakfast Club, the world's most dangerous morning show. Hey! Angela E is kind of like the big sister that always pokes you in the forehead. That's not how it goes? That's not how anything goes. Yemi's really like a robot. One of the best DJs ever. Believe that. Charlamagne is the wild card. And I'm about to give somebody the credit they deserve for being stupid. I know that's right. <laughs> what is wrong with you? <laughs> Listen to The Breakfast Club weekday mornings from 6 to 10 on 1067 The Beat. Columbus is real hip-hop and R&B. Yeah, Casper. I am so excited to talk to you about Casper because it's an obsessively engineered mattress at what they call a shockingly fair price. And I agree with that statement. It is shockingly fair because if you've ever gone into a mattress store and I mean, it's an awful experience. And then you look at the price and you're just like, holy moly, am I going to spend like three grand on this mattress? Like, I can't do this. I'm going to need to get a box spring and just sleep on that. Well, don't do that. So what they have is Casper has supportive memory foams that create a award-winning sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. And what's even cooler is they let you try this thing for 100 nights risk-free in your own home. And if you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. Casper understands the importance of truly sleeping on a mattress and not just like testing it for five seconds, but sleeping on it before you commit, especially considering you're going to spend a third of your life on it. Free shipping and returns to the U.S. and Canada. And then they have over 20,000 reviews and an average of 4.8 stars. It is for sure the Internet's favorite mattress. And I agree because I sleep on a Casper. I'm so excited because my parents, I've been living with them for quite some time because the new house that I purchased is getting redone. And there's going to be a Casper that is waiting there for me. But they have a Casper in their guest room. And I've been sleeping on it, and I love it. And it's one of those things where, you know, I've been aware of the product for quite some time, but then once I tried it, I'm like, oh, dude, this is the real deal. This is absolutely awesome. So please go to 100 Word. Wait, what am I talking about? No, 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 no. I was about to say, I'm going to refer you to our website. No, 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 no. Go to casper.com slash words, and then using the offer code words. And what it will do is it will give you $50 off. And terms and conditions, of course, apply. But please, $50 off. It's unbelievable. Casper.com slash words and then using the offer code words because that way they know that they came to Casper via this show. So please try it out. You literally have nothing to lose. It's the best sleep I've ever gotten and I want to give you that as well. So Casper, thanks for the support. Now on with the show. I also became pretty uh, obsessed with the notion of, you know, the community that you guys were creating with, you know, releasing records on Second Nature and just a lot of the bands that started to exist in that area, you know, had, you know, like you mentioned, you were all friends, you played together, but then it started to, you know, spread out and people started to recognize 
all of the work that was coming specifically from you know Kansas City. Um, did you? Uh, I guess did you feel that uh, attention? Like from, you know, I mean, clearly you could see it, you know, with the shows that you were playing in your hometown and stuff like that. But, you know, did you notice people, you know, as you started to get out being like, oh, like, that's really cool. We're from Kansas City and like all that sort of, you know, communal feedback hitting you in like, you know, (laughs) Portland, Oregon, where people were like, yeah, I heard of you guys because of this particular thing. Yeah, you know, I think. Um, the first time that that really like the whole like Kansas city pride and like the, you know, my scene, like making an impact. The first time I saw that happen was the first time that I went, um, to, we were on a coalesce tour and we ran into the get up kids at a fest. And I think it was, I think it was Wilkes bar fest actually. And the get up kids played and you know, there's 350 kids singing along and dancing and we were just stoked out of our mind for our friends, you know, like, Oh, this is awesome. Like everybody's loving the get up kids, you know? And we like, they, they wrote that record and they practiced, um, in Jeff's basement, uh, where we wrote all the coalesce stuff. So like we were, you know, sit upstairs after practice and listen to the get up kids writing those songs. So yeah, like that experience of watching them, um, just blow up right before our eyes was, was, huge. And then, you know, you mentioned second nature and, um, when we'd go to Canada and, and play with grade and grade like wants to ask about second nature and get involved. And then it wasn't just Kansas city bands or, um, you know, local friends. Like it was like international, literally like these people wanting to be involved in, in what we were doing and like what Dan was doing specifically with second nature. And, um, you know, we never had enough good stuff to say about Dan because he was super pro and like always down for whatever. And, um, you know, just, just one of the best people. So like, you know, we were excited to like share the good word of second nature to anybody who wanted to hear about it. Yeah, no, that's right. I like that. Um, you know, and then, you, you know, your, your time in Coalesce was well-documented and, you know, I'm not going to belabor any of the, you know, hey, tell me ridiculous tour stories and that sort of stuff because, you know, that's frankly not that interesting to me because you've spoken about it before. But the, um, you know, a through line that I've seen through, you know, basically all of the bands that you've existed in, the projects that you've put out in the world, you know, there's a certain technicality to them. You know, you're, you know, not just playing, you know, simple whatever you know, three, four chord power chords or whatever. Um, there, you know, where do you think that kind of comes from? Cause you know, yes, there is a, a respect when you're getting into, you know, punk and hardcore of like, Oh yeah. The, you know, certain people are really talented musicians and, you know, really kind of dedicate themselves to the craft. Um, it seems like you had that respect, you know, pretty early on and you were making sure that you weren't, you know, terrible at your instrument is, uh, <laughs> is that, uh, is that a correct assumption or did you just kind of yeah. get attracted to that? You know, I think um, I can squarely place all the blame on Jess from Coalesce for that one. Because, uh, you know, when I first um, started working with him and writing a record with him, like, I I can remember writing, um, functioning on Impatience with him and, you know, learning the little tricks and, like, we were always trying to outdo each other on, on the next part. And, like, what if we did it like this? What if we did it like that? And, like, doing these stupid things that, like, we were the only ones who ever knew what the hell we were doing. Like, nobody ever heard that stuff, but we were challenging ourselves anyway. And, like, I was, it, it was so fun and I was so inspired by it um, that obviously I, I held on to that and, like, I wanted to do that 
um, and everything I did moving forward, whether I was playing with him or not. Um, so yeah, I, 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 uh, I will blame Jess for that one. Um, and you know, like even looking back, like early Cascalari stuff, when I would do more of that, do those little tricks and the little, put the little, um, secret things in the songs. Like sometimes I listen back and I'm like, that was so stupid. What the hell was I thinking? Why did I write it like that? Right. It's so dumb, you know, but, um, I don't know. It was just part of the process. And, and, you know, like as the years went on and I got more comfortable writing with the casket lottery, you know, like I streamlined some of that stuff and, um, Stacy brought his own, uh, riffs to, to the table and, and, um, you know, it changed in other ways, but like, I always felt like, um, all of that stuff that I did was like really in un unconventional and like really, um, wrong, you know, like I, I don't know what I was doing. I was just, <laughs> I was just trying to like put something cool together and, and that's what came up. But like, if you uh, look like from a traditional song structure standpoint, it's all wrong. Right. <laughs> like I, I did it wrong. That's all there was to it. Right. Right. Yeah. You were, <laughs> you were operating off of instinct rather than, you know, the, the technical by the book songwriting, you know, courses. Sure. Right. 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 But yeah. And I didn't even know. And you know what, honestly, that's one of those things that I learned more of, um, from Mike and Ben who, you know, like early small brown bike stuff, they were doing some really technical stuff too, but like they still like operate in a very, um, traditional song structure, uh, way. So like when I started playing with them, you know, I remember Ben asking one day, like, if I wanted to do the high harmony or the, or the main part, and I was like, I don't know what you're talking about, man. Like, I'm just going to yell this part. And he's like, no, like this or like this. And I was like, oh, yeah, I guess I'll do it like that. So, like, I picked up some of those um, lessons from, from playing with those guys. And, like, um, you know, I think it's important to, you know, gather all the tools along the way and, and be able to, to work, you know, to use them uh, however best serves the the song and the record in that moment. So, um, yeah, but, but like looking back specifically, like first casket lottery record, what I, what the hell was I doing? I don't know. I was just making it up as I went. Right. Right. <laughs> My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. Uh, you know, on that same point, you know, casket lottery. Um, Check the backseat. Check the backseat. Right, Check the backseat. Gets in your head, right? Good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the backseat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. You, you guys were very prolific. And I mean, I saw you guys... I mean, I probably saw you at least like seven or eight times because you do you did come out to the West Coast a decent amount. You know, whether I saw you at the Shea Cafe in San Diego or you know Chain Reaction or whatever. Um, 
And you, you guys were very prolific and you were really, uh, you know, hardworking in regards to touring and making, you know, putting your name out there. Because I know it, that time in particular was so strange for bands kind of, you know, of your ilk. You know, I'm going to put you in the, you know, whatever indie rock slash emo, whatever, whatever category you want to put it in. But there was a lot of attention being paid to, you know, bands in that independent scene you know and you guys were always kind of on the fringe of it just because like you said you had these you know you had you had very catchy songs but they were you know completely unconventional you know um but did you i guess did you see people paying attention to you know what casca lottery was doing from like uh oh like you know maybe we can talk to these guys and like sign them to the label and like you know we're you know not even from a major label perspective but did you feel that kind of business stuff infiltrating you uh no not at all Uh, you know honestly i i I think that we um we just went and played a lot we just went and toured a lot and we wrote a lot of songs and you know i think the reason that we wrote so many songs and recorded so many songs is because like i love the studio man like i loved going in and and working with ed rose and, and recording the record so like the more i could do that like that the better like that just gave me life you know so um so that was what that was all about. It wasn't a, you know, there was no motive to like look for uh, some sort of major label attention or anything like that. In fact, like, um, all the touring and all of the shows we played, like we never, we never went on a big tour. Like all those shows were pretty small. Like I, I don't, I can't, I have no idea what the largest casket ladder show we ever played was, but some like one-off fest you know, something like that. But like, we never, you know, went out as like a main support for like a hot water music or, uh, or even the get up kids or like some of those bigger bands. Um, we were always just kind of going around, like hoping to play to 150 kids a night tops, you know? Um, but we just did a lot. We just, we just did a lot of tours, um, back and forth up and down each coast. So, um, yeah, I, I don't think, like, I saw any of that business stuff really pop up, you know? Like, those offers just simply weren't there. Those conversations weren't happening. Right, right. And did you, I mean, I guess by default, just because, you know, you, most people are attracted to the singer in regards to, you know, business and, you know, settling at the end of the shows and, you know, booking shows and that sort of stuff, you know, did you have, I guess, an interest and a proclivity for it? Or was that just kind of, you know, you had to do it because that's how you got out there? Yeah, exactly. I, that was just the role that I inherited, you know, like I booked all the shows and, um, I, you know, this was like before cell phones and, um, and really before internet. So like, I remember, um, booking the first few casket shows and saying, all right, dudes, if I can make $200 from this trip to offset my long distance phone bill, I'm set, you know, like, and that was it. Like we'd come home broke and hopefully I had the $200 to pay my phone bill. And that was, (laughs) that was just fine. You know, it was like, I don't care. I didn't care. We were, uh, going to, um, play, you know, (laughs) total shitholes all over the country, you know, and, uh, not sleep and drive 14 hours a day and having a great time. Yeah. And it, it it seems to me too, um, you know, with, uh, with that, like you, you must have, you know, clearly enjoyed touring. Was that something that you, you know, you immediately took to, or was that something you had to, I guess, get adjusted to being, you know, away from home and being kind of like thrown into these weird circumstances? Uh, no, I, I loved it immediately. Like, um, 
going out with CoreOS um, really um, was eye-opening for me. You know, like like I told you earlier, I was just this kid from the suburbs. You know, like so getting out in the world and going to the to the cities and um, experiencing like the wildness of what happened at some of the punk shows all across the country and then but also like the community aspect of it like going to meet like um friends that i you know only written letters to or um you know booked the show through and like finally getting to meet them and then like um knowing that if i was going back to um you know if i was going back to orange county i knew who i was going to see at the show you know if i was going uh, back to Toronto. I knew who was going to be at the show, you know? So I loved it. Yeah. I, um, you know, and it, it got, it got more challenging the older you got. And, um, or, I mean, I guess it still is, you know, I don't do it much anymore, but, um, you know, the, the comforts that we're used to now in our, you know, middle age, um, they're, they're not on the road, man. They're not in the van and they're not, um, on some, uh, person's hardwood floor in chicago at two in the morning after the show you know <laughs> yeah absolutely uh, <clears throat> kind of you know on that same kind of idea where you know, reflecting on coalesce um you know that that band in general you know from all of the you know starts and stops and breakups and kind of drama that existed around the band nothing really seemed easy with the band beyond maybe the, you know, creation of said music or that maybe might've been also filled with a lot of, you know, (laughs) a lot of heated discussions. Um, did you kind of, I guess, feel that sort of intensity in regards to like, Oh man, nothing, nothing seems to come easy or like, Oh, we don't catch a break or like, Oh man, Sean said something on stage that apparently everybody, you know, disagrees (laughs) with or whatever, you know, did you notice that? I just thought that that was being in a band, you know, like I didn't, I don't have any other, uh, experiences to compare it to, you know? So, um, there was definitely some tours that were more tense than others, um, due to, you know, personal stuff that was going on at the time. Um, and there was always like some weird drama in the scene around something Sean said at one point or another, um, you know, but like that was just being in coalesce. So I didn't know any better. Right. No, that's true. I guess, you know, yeah, you don't have, I mean, I guess then maybe when you were playing, you know, in casket lottery, um, you know, did you, I guess, reflect on that being like, Oh man, that was harder in coalesce and it's a little bit easier in casket lottery. I don't know if that makes sense. Well, it was a different hard in casket lottery because I was the band dad in casket lottery. I had to like book all the shows. I had to like, I was the one in charge of everything. Whereas like in coalesce, I was the young kid, you know, and I was just like hopping in the van and like, you know, playing bass and like staying out of the way. So, you know, by the time I started doing casket lottery, I was responsible for different things. So, um, yeah, no, I don't know that I've ever been in an easy band <laughs> to answer your question. Like, sure. I just don't think it's easy, you know? Uh, I guess maybe it is like once you get to a certain level, but, um, I've never experienced it. Being in a, being in a band isn't about like uh, the easy part. It's about, you know, um, you know, the, the creative process and, and like having to share the experience on stage as corny as that sounds like, uh, at the, the 45 minutes to an hour that you get to do that each show. It's definitely not about the 10 hour drive to the show or the six hour wait at the club. You know what I mean? Like, that's not what you're in it for. You know, like you're sitting there at the club, like, holy shit, we play in seven hours. Uh, right. Yeah. It's, it's like the actual moments that you get to play. 
that's that's what it's about yeah absolutely yeah i mean no no one else witnesses the you know mind and soul crushing boredom that you're like why why did we have to load in at three like we gotta yeah the hurry up and wait that's what we call it hurry up and wait of course so yeah that's that's not fun yeah that's like it goes back to what i was talking about earlier about like the uncle who thinks you're out like on your tour bus you know smashing your hotel room like no man like i'm sitting at that dingy bar for four hours waiting to play for 45 minutes so right hopefully they got a hopefully they got a pinball machine (laughs) right (laughs) um and then you know as you uh you know kept touring with you know casket lottery and then as the you know your your touring life started to you know die down like you know clearly you've always been active from a musical perspective and writing music but then you know touring became less uh important um were you know was that a hard shift for you to be able to kind of you know a, a, a be more um, present in the quote unquote real world or did you always kind of feel connected to that even when you were touring um, you know how did that uh, I guess manifest itself with you well um, so I had a I had a daughter I mean that's really what it boiled down to I okay. I went on a um, uh, probably like a two and a half week tour after my first daughter was, I think she was like three months, something like that, three to four months. And I remember the the look she gave me when I walked back in the room, like after being gone two and a half weeks, it was like this weird, confused look, like, like, you know, where the hell have you been? You know, like I was gone for like such a significant percentage of her life at that time that like, when that happened, I was like, dude, I don't, I don't want to do that. Like I just, that part's not fun. You know, it was much more difficult to be away at that time. And of course it's, you know, hard on my wife, um, you know, to be home alone with a, a baby at the time. So it was just, um, it was something that I had to do. Like it just didn't feel good to go on tour at that time. So, um, so yeah, took a, took a real significant break from that. Right. And how, how old was your daughter when you kind of ran into that? Uh, man, I think that was like three and a half, four months, something like that. Right. Yeah. And that's, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's a, that's a huge weight when, you know, especially when you're out there, you know, as you were touring where it's like, you know, you didn't have this like, Hey honey, I'm going to bring home like two grand from this. Right. (laughs) I'll be gone for like, exactly. Right. And it's like, it's hard you know, to look at people in the face that you care about and just be like, yeah. And so I'm going to do this thing that, you know, ostensibly is a quote unquote waste of time from, you know, the real world perspective, but like, it, it's awesome, but I, I can't, I can't, maybe, maybe I can't do this to you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, and you, you call home every day and you just hear it in the voice and it's like, this sucks. This is, I feel like such an asshole right now. So, um, you know, you get to that point where you're like, I probably shouldn't do this selfish thing for a while you know, and, um, and and you know what, like, uh, knowing what I know now, like, obviously that's, that's, that's kind of a a small period of time. Like, you know, my kids are old enough now. I could, you know, my wife would be stoked if I went on (laughs) out of the house for a while, you know, uh, you know, it's not, it's not the challenge that it is when they're, when they're babies. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, I just, I had to take a break. I I did. It was like, it was this thing. Um, and I was young too. So I was like, I was 20 years old when I, when I had my first daughter. So, or 21. Um, so, you know, playing in the casket, Larry, those dudes didn't understand, you know, and I was like, Hey, I I can't do this for a little bit. They, 
they thought I was dumb, you know, they yeah. didn't understand. So, but now they all have kids and they've both told me multiple times, like, Hey, like <laughs> I remember when we gave you shit for that and we get it. Sorry. <laughs> totally. You're like, what do you, what do you mean, Nate? You what a loser. You want to like stay home and like watch it, watch a baby. Right. What's a baby going to do? <laughs> yeah. All right. You know, and I think it's also like, um, you know, a transition into like the workplace environment where you bring, the, the, you know, the band and punk community with you, you know, like when you start working with people from different, um, different backgrounds and you can kind of, you know, bring your experiences to it. Like I just kind of transitioned like how I did my day to day to a different group of people, you know? And, um, I don't know, I learned a lot in that time period, like just how to, how to be a person and like how to, um, you know, how, how do you, get happiness from, um, you know, the day to day job as opposed to like out playing rock and roll songs every night. Yeah. There, there's definitely something to be said about when you get exposed to a routine. Cause I mean, even though touring on any level is, you know, that's not real life. Like you're in this weird suspended state of animation where you're just like, Oh yeah. Like, you know, yeah, you're checking in back home, but you know, you're only responsible for yourself. And like, that could probably be, you know, argued as well, where it's like, well, you're barely responsible for yourself because you just have to get up on stage and sweat and make sure you don't mess up on guitar or whatever. Um, but the, like when you when you do find a routine, it's just like, oh yeah, yeah, like this is this is nice to be able to like exist and be comfortable. Yeah, and you know, like I don't think that I could be like a touring guy. You know, like I don't think that I could do that. Um, full time, like always be away from home, always be away from my family, always, um, do that hurry up and wait thing that we're talking about. Like, I just, I think that I would burn out pretty quick, you know? Um, I don't have that, like, I don't have the youthful energy that I did back in the day to like do it and to like go run into like random friends. And, um, uh, you know, I, it sounds draining, like (laughs) honestly, like, and don't get me wrong. Like I love touring. I love playing shows and I would love to do, you know, a big chunk of tour right now. It sounds like a lot of fun, but like eight months out of the year. Oh man, I don't know if I got that in me. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it sounds something like that would sound daunting. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I, you know, I still have some friends who do that and who travel constantly. And like, I love to go out um, and see them when they come to town and like, kind of like, live vicariously through what's going on and, 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 you know, kind of daydream about it. But man, I'm really comfortable. Like (laughs) I like, I love getting into bed. I love waking up and making my own coffee and, you know, all that other stuff. Um, you know, you know, not getting to bed until three in the morning and driving 14 hours to the show. I could do without it. Yeah. (laughs) No, absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm okay. Absolutely. Well, and plus, you know, I mean, this, this goes, you know, completely hand in hand with, you know, Abel Baker Fox where, you know, that's existed for, you know, whatever, five, six, seven years now, but it, you know, there's like literally no pressure for you guys to, you know, exist from a full-time touring entity, but you can, you know, join up with people, release music and, you know, put yourself out there and you're still scratching that creative itch to where it's not as, you know, daunting as being gone eight months out of the year. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's, um, it's definitely not like being in a regular band though. And I do miss that. Like I miss, um, I miss the opportunity to get together and practice, you know, once a week with these guys. I would love for that to be the case. Like, but you know, 
Mike and Ben are in Michigan. Um, Jeff is still in Brooklyn. Um, and I'm here in Kansas city. I, Jeff came out this summer and I tried really hard to get him to move out here, man. Like I took him all around town. I showed him the sites, but it just, it didn't take. So I got to keep pushing on that one. But, um, yeah, I would love to like have a regular band practice night, but that's just not the case. In fact, we're playing a couple shows here in, in a couple weeks. And, um, before you called, I was, I, was, I had guitar practice. I was practicing, you know, uh, in my living room, you know, like learning the set. And it's like, that's not as fun. <laughs> it's not as cool. I feel like a dork. But, um, but yeah, you're right. It's, it is an opportunity to um, get together with my friends and play and record and, and release a record. And, um, and we're excited. We got some shows coming up and we'll get to go out and do that. And it's not the full uh, tour cycle kind of thing. It's a fly in and outs kind of deal, um, which is, you know, pros and cons, but, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm excited to do it again. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, the, uh, you know, the last thing I want to hit on was the, um, you know, the notion that we were joking about earlier in regards to, you know, your 16 year old daughter comes home and is like, yeah, I'm going to go on tour. And then, you know, how do you feel? Um, you know, I, I guess also in, like you said, in your work life as well, like taking all of these, you know, DIY, you know, punk principles of, you know, not like you don't have to ask permission to book a tour and like all these things that we did, um, you know, when you first started to play in a band, um, you know, how does that kind of inform, you know, who you are, you know, at, at work, how you are as a dad, like, you know, how does that, uh, like, do you think about that often or is that just kind of instinctual? You know, uh, I I don't know if this is what you're asking, but uh, what, you know, what your question led me to in my, and my thoughts here was I've been thinking more and more about like, um, my kids like coming to that age where, um, I was when I started doing this stuff. And it, it's not that, you know, I think my kids are going to join punk bands and go do whatever they want, but, um, it's a, it's a reminder every day, um, lately that like, I gotta like, I gotta find ways to like nurture whatever that is in them that they're excited about, that they care about, that they want to, um, get more involved in because here I am, like I'm talking to you, um, uh, 20, two years after I had those experiences at, at the age of 16 and it's still important to me, you know, and I want to, I want to find those opportunities for my kids to have something that's like a lifelong passion and and something that they uh, really love in their life. And like, that's what I think about now. It's like, I I've had a great time doing this stuff playing this music and hanging out with my friends. Um, and I want that for my kids. Like I want to figure out what that is and how I can help them do that. So I don't know if that's what you're asking. No, no, but that's, that's where I landed. Yeah, no, no, that, I mean, it makes total sense. It's, it, <clears throat> it is one of those things where you really, you know, your only job as a parent is to really, I, you know, introduce your kids to a bunch of random stuff and then hopefully, you know, one or two of those things tick because, you know, it, it is a rare occurrence where you find something that you're really passionate about and that it will take you throughout the rest of your life. You know, it's like, yeah, music is one of the, like, you know, I'm sure it's wild when you speak to people who are just like, yeah, music, like, you know, it's whatever. And you're just like, really? <laughs> I mean, I, I guess I get it to yeah. a certain extent, but that's weird. And so I, I completely understand what you're talking about. Just finding that passion and hopefully being able to foster it. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't want to miss my opportunity to, 
do that for them um, while I'm still focusing on my bullshit 16-year-old thing. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to, like, <laughs> totally. be like, no, you can't do your thing. I'm going on tour. <laughs> you know? Like, I got to, like, I got to find that line and, like, uh, figure out a way to, uh, you know, still support, like, my fun thing, but, like, um, come up with a way for them to, to do their thing. Like, you know, divide my time appropriately, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes yeah. that makes total yeah. sense. Uh, I, w- one last thing occurred to me that you know, in in regards to you know you you playing live and especially from the you know the chaoticness of uh, you know Coalesce's live show and you know how people you know usually whether it was uh, the crowd and or individual band members you know getting hurt and injured. What uh, <laughs> I guess what was you know what's the worst injury that you ha- either have have inflicted on yourself or have accidentally inflicted on yourself on stage? Just because you know I I definitely remember the times being like i don't don't think any of these like i think these guys are really gonna get hurt when i've watched you know coalesce i mean and even frankly casket lottery at times where i was just like you know swinging certain guitars around it's like oh yeah someone's gonna get hit yeah you know i i guess i consider myself pretty lucky i I, you know i never took a headstock to the face like knock on wood like i don't think that's gonna happen anytime soon but uh, i never did that um uh i I broke my heel um at a coalesce show um and that one sucked because you know you can't (laughs) you just gotta wait on that one that took a while uh broke a thumb um i i think uh it's uh i think jess has a permanently broken toe that we nicknamed grimace because it's been purple for about seven years (laughs) uh and (laughs) it's swollen and purple toe um but yeah, you know, I think we've been pretty lucky. We've kind of avoided like serious injury, um, lots of bumps and bruises. Oh man! Yeah. Oh yeah. no, absolutely. It's. I mean, it's definitely yeah. one. Of, it's definitely one of those things. Like when you first get hurt on stage, and you know, like there's blood in some capacity. It's just kind of like, oh, that's weird that happened. But like you know, people in the crowd are usually more horrified than you are because you're in the middle of you know a conniption fit as you're playing or whatever. <laughs> yeah, the adrenaline's there. You know, there's been plenty of times when I've seen. Uh, when I saw Jess take off into the crowd where I um, was a little bit worried about the crowd, not in the moment, you know, you never notice that stuff in the moment, but like uh, if um, somebody showed me a video later, I'm like, Jesus Christ, you got to chill out a little bit. Right. And then I've seen pictures, you know, of, of people at coalesce shows that are covered in blood and stuff. So, um, but I think it was all in good fun. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Well, dude, Nate, thank you so much for hanging out, man. This has been fun to uh, yeah, yeah, chat chat about uh, creativity and everything else that we did. So, yeah, thanks for hanging, man. Yeah, yeah, thanks for reaching out. I appreciate it. Yep, yep, yep. That was Nate, and uh, thank you very much, Nate, and thank you very much to his publicist Mike for hooking this up. And like I said, check out the new Abel Baker Fox record. It's super good. You can find it on any streaming platform, or you can buy the records directly from No Sleep. However, you want to do it, just do it because it's a really good record. And uh, what do I got for next week? I have a really intense conversation with Chaka from Burn. And uh, I'm just, just going to leave it at that. It is an intense convo. He's an intense dude, super friendly, but intense. And I love the conversation. So uh, that's that. And also, I really, really want to thank you for all the feedback that I got from last week's Buried Treasure episode about 2000s Hardcore. 
Thank you very much. I'm going to be doing that. I'm going to try to do it once a month because people, it's been overwhelmingly positive in regards to people just nerding out about the bands that Joey and I mentioned or the specific requests for doing certain genres of music. So I, uh, that, that'll be more of a regular thing. It won't be just like once or twice a year. So anyways, that's that. And, um, yeah, until next week, please be safe, everybody, because there's a lot of horrible stuff happening around the world right now. And uh, I want you to do two things. One, like I said, be safe. And two, reach out to people to help them, whether it's financially, whether it's supporting your community, contributing to food banks, whatever the case may be, we all as a society have to step up. We can't just live in our insular worlds and not help people, not only in our communities, but around the world. Um, just, just do it. I can't emphasize that point enough, but yeah, please do that and be safe, everybody. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network, jabberjawmedia.com. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Trust me in saying that no matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all of the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans... Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council.